social mobility is a subject that is very close to my heart, which is why I'm so excited to bring you this extra special roundtable episode of The 40 Minute Mentor. In today's episode, you'll hear from an expert panel who are all committed to advancing social mobility. They are Mandy Niarco, co-founder of Startup Discovery School, Lucy McCarthy-Christofides, head of proposition and range at Tails.com, Azechi Britton, co-founder of Digital Skills Academy, Code Untapped, and founding member and principal at Impact X Capital, Ruth Penfold, people practice lead at BP Launchpad, and Ewan Blair, co-founder and CEO at White Hat. Every single person on this panel is incredibly passionate about levelling the playing field and providing more opportunities to those from underrepresented communities. It was so interesting to dive deeper into this important topic, and we covered a lot of ground. This included discussing the numerous barriers people from underprivileged backgrounds must overcome as they attempt to build a career, and we explored what steps business leaders can take to help level the playing field. We also discussed why a degree isn't the be-all and end-all, and how apprenticeships can play a key role in boosting social mobility. We also discussed the cultural shift many companies need to make when it comes to recruiting people from different backgrounds, specifically those who have been on a less traditional educational journey. Plus, why black founders are far less likely to gain VC funding and what can be done to rebalance this. As you'll hear, there was a lot to discuss and we could easily have gone on for another hour, so I do hope there'll be an opportunity for a round two soon. Our panel shared some personal stories frustrations, many thought-provoking opinions, and provided inspirational advice and ideas on how we can tangibly make a difference. So if you're keen to do more to support those who are underrepresented in your industry or society at large, then this podcast will give you an insight into the things that can be done right now and what you can personally do to make a difference. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this really important conversation about social mobility. Thank you all for tuning in to this extra special 40-minute mental episode uh, focused on the important topic of social mobility. This is a subject close to my heart and I think is more important than ever at this time, given the impact of the pandemic, which is particularly damaging effect for those from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I am really honoured to be joined by five fantastic leaders, uh, all of whom are passionate about advancing social mobility. So without further ado, I'd like to kick things off with some introductions. So if you don't mind all introducing yourselves, giving us an overview of what you do and telling our audience why social mobility is important to you. And I'm going to start with Mandy, if that's okay. Cool. Hi, everyone. So I'm Mandy. I'm co-founder of Startup Discovery School. Startup Discovery School is an incubator and acceleration program that supports founders from all backgrounds, particularly underrepresented backgrounds, to launch their ideas and scale their businesses. For me, social mobility is so important, not just to myself and the founders that I work with, but to everyone who I would say doesn't really understand what it means and the impact it has on your life. I think for me, I've been lucky or fortunate enough to have understood what social mobility meant for my success quite early on. And I've seen the impact it's had for me as I've leveraged or I guess maneuvered through different ecosystems. I grew up in from a background where education was meant to be the key ingredient to success. But when faced the opportunity to see that, uh, education failed me. But actually, who I knew is what came to save me. So social mobility for me is so important for people who don't have access to different social networks. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. Um, Lucy, do you mind going next? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Lucy McCarthy Christofides, longest name ever, um, <laughs> head of proposition and range at the tech scale up tails.com. And we make tailor made dog food, which is pretty cool. My role there is essentially coming up with what kind of products we should sell, how much we should charge for them, and you know, how we can maximize LTV that way. What social mobility means to me, I guess, it's actually a more difficult question to answer than it kind of seems, isn't it? I think that on one half, quite similar to Mandy, there's my own personal experiences and, you know, kind of as I've gone on in my career, realizing some of the differences in um, opportunities and challenges I face versus other people. Because when you grow up, well, certainly for myself, I didn't actually realize that I was at a disadvantage, as it were, or didn't realize the difference in opportunities kind of as much as, you know, as you go through life to navigate. So I guess there's one side is that, then there's also kind of how passionate I am around the benefits of embracing diversity across all kind of different aspects, including social class and how the power and the power that there is in doing that, both from the benefits to society and, you know, a fairer society, but also in terms of like collective intelligence. And I'm sure we'll come on to that and the benefits of kind of embracing diversity a little bit later on. But it's kind of how passionate I am around actually in order to disrupt and be innovative, then we need to think differently. In order to do that, we need to have diversity of thought. And that only comes really from embracing all different backgrounds. Fantastic. Thank you, Lucy. Azachi, do you mind going next? Hi, I'm Azachi Britton, or as I'm one of the co-founders and a director of Code Untapped, which is the Digital Skills Academy. Our, our whole focus is innovation through diversity. So we give underrepresented technologists a voice. But I'm also founding member principal and CTO in residence for Impact X Capital, which is the venture capital fund supporting underrepresented entrepreneurs across UK and Europe. So I probably have the longest title in, in the group, whilst Lucy has the longest name. Um, what, why is social mobility so important to me? Well, to me, it's all about simple fact. Ability is equally distributed, but opportunity isn't, right? And it's about giving people the freedom to fail, and the right and the opportunity to fully participate in all levels of the society that we live in today. Me personally, I grew up in the southeast of London. I went to a, a school with a 5HC pass rate of 14%. I went to a school where the idea of working in finance or banking was unheard of. Most of the kids mm -hmm. in my class wanted to go on welfare when they were older. And mm -hmm. I failed my A-levels and yet somehow I managed to find my way into Lehman Brothers and from Lehman into Credit Suisse. From Credit Suisse, I co-founded my own fintech, which was a multi-award winning organization, which raised over 200 million. And then I became co-founder of Code Untapped and joined Impact X as a VC. So if I can do it, then everyone should have that same level of opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. Ruth, if you don't mind. Of course. Uh, well, hello, everyone. I'm Ruth Penfold, and I am people practice lead for BP Launchpad. That's right, BP as in the big oil and gas company, BP. And we are a new accelerator building new energy businesses. And my role there is to help build those businesses from a people standpoint and create brilliantly diverse, high-performing teams that uh, help invent what our future world looks like with any luck. Uh, bold ambitions, for sure. But my reason for being, honestly, uh, the reason I do all of that is because my whole thing is about getting people to live their very best lives. That's the thing that lights me up. So to me, you can only really experience joy in your life um, because joy for me is 
that still feeling when you get when you're walking in alignment with your soul and you only get to do that when you get back to your authentic self and who you really are now if you're coming into a world where you're not able to be your authentic self or you don't know how to get there you are going to be limited and i'm all about tearing down societal limitations but also we know that the limitations that we've all had and have probably had to overcome as adults have been self-inflicted so actually overcoming those personal limitations and you know my ultimate wish would be that we get in there early enough with young people so that they can see a bold bright horizon of potential and possibility but you know a few of us are still hacking and figuring out how we support that brilliant ruth thank you God, I'm, I'm getting more and more excited about this conversation everybody uh, is uh, is is bringing their a game to this intro thank you um no pressure ewan uh, over to you <laughs> well hello everyone i'm uh, i'm ewan founder and ceo of white hat and we are a company on a mission to create a diverse group of future leaders by building an outstanding alternative to university through apprenticeships and white hat basically exists because universities broken as a one-size-fits-all model they're still teaching the way they were decades ago, despite massive changes we've seen in the labor market. And they're actually really not meeting this challenge on improving social mobility and opening mm. up opportunities to a truly diverse group of people. And we focus on three main areas, give employers a way of measuring potential that isn't uh, looking at work experience or academics, mm. training people through applied learning, so teaching them how to effectively problem solve, and then finally giving our apprentices access to a really thriving social network community experience, meetups, society, sports teams, the kinds of things that are really valuable and you don't just get from a working training program. And social mobility to me is, is effectively about a quality of opportunity. And it's, it's one of our values at White Hat. We describe it as essentially meaning your background should never define your destination. And that cannot work or hold true unless we create some form of system change, because there are a range of structural barriers that prevent people being able to realize their full potential. And we need to call them out and, and do something about it. Thank you. Brilliant. Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you all for those amazing intros. I thought we'd kick this off talking about education, which I think is super important. And I was very privileged to go to a school called Christ Hospital, which has social mobility at the heart of its mission. It offers private education for free or substantially subsidized to talented young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I was very lucky, as were my peers. But I think I read somewhere that over half of the adults from the poorest backgrounds receive no training at all after leaving school. And I and the majority of my peers went on to uni. I'm pretty sure everyone else on this panel did too. And the fact that more people are doing degrees, I think has ultimately affected social mobility over the years. But with the rise of apprenticeships, going to university isn't the default option anymore. So Ewan, who I know is an expert on this, how do you think the increase in apprenticeships will shift the landscape over the coming years? So, I mean, look, it won't surprise you to, to hear that I think apprenticeships can make a huge difference, but it's, it's actually, you talked about the rising people going to university, the expectation that everyone should be going to university in order to have a great career, first is no longer true, but secondly, it's also really damaging because creating this, this one model that gets fetishized above everything else, is just not a good thing. And people need a plurality of options and university is, is been able to become a little bit complacent by not having a true sustained challenge. So universities actually not been doing a great job on social mobility. Nearly half of those on, on corporate graduate programs were educated at private school. Only 4% of those claiming free school meals make it to a Russell Group University. 
And so uh, apprenticeships actually provide a much fairer route into careers for a broad cross-section of people. Uh, and they allow companies to kind of engage, engage with and hire people from backgrounds they never otherwise meet. So I think that as a mechanism, they're probably the single best one to increase representation at employers and do that in a really practical way. And one of the reasons I founded White Hat was basically solving this problem of how do you ensure the best jobs of the next decade don't just go to the same people the best jobs the last decade mm-hmm. went to. And I think apprenticeships will play a critical role in actually distributing opportunity more evenly. And at the same time, you've got this, this need for digital skills and increased emphasis on applied learning, how you embed those skills that people and employers really need in the workforce. And apprenticeships can play that dual role of combining a broader education, aligning it with the workplace, and particularly in, in the throes of a pandemic and what we're going through at the moment, Teaching people completely in isolation from the labor market, things we think they want to learn, is of questionable benefit. And we really need to be looking at the entire system and how that works and and how that functions. Absolutely. And I think we'd all probably know people that just felt they had to go to uni went there and actually probably didn't make the most of the opportunity. Um, And I certainly know a number of people like that. Mandy, sorry, do you want to add to that? Oh, no, I was going to say that I'm one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think there are so many people that actually, when I look at my own year, there was was probably the most successful person on my year was the only one that didn't go to university. He just cracked straight on. He knew what he wanted to do with his life and he he went and did it. So, yeah, I think think what you're doing, Ewan, is is amazing and, and, and I'm a big fan. James, may I add something there, though, just as a sort of from the other side, what I would say is absolutely I agree that uh, our current education system from soup to nuts is fundamentally flawed and doesn't cater to every single kind of brain that it needs to. I felt like I wasn't intelligent throughout the entirety of my of my schooling, um, <laughs> and I was wrong, right? Um, but that's because I have a brain that works in a different way. But what I would say about the apprentice schemes is, brilliant idea, brilliant initiative, but from a technology business standpoint, we kind of miss a step on being able to, I'm talking about smaller tech businesses and really being able to benefit from it. If I talk about Shazam specifically, headcount was really, really squeezed because we were about to sell to Apple, right? And we really wanted to make the most of the apprentice scheme that was available, but there wasn't kind of stuff that really fit in in our organization. So what I would say is, and uh, you know, it's a great it's a great jump off point. And obviously the work that people like White Hat do is phenomenal to help us bridge the gap. But there is still a gap because there is still they, they, a lot of the apprentice um, courses, the, the apprenticeships rather, apprenticeships that, that are there don't necessarily fit super well into the working world. And I know it's an impossible challenge, but I think there needs to be a leaning in from both sides, from industry as well, to figure out how we really make those things successful and bring them into every kind of business so that small tech businesses can also, you know, support their ultimate mission. Can I come back on that just briefly? Yeah. I think, by the way, I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying. I think the problem is actually really one of execution, right? And we work with, yes, we work with people like Google, Facebook, Unilever, Bloomberg, on tech and digital apprenticeships, but we also work with lots of startups in the ecosystem. And you've basically got to be prepared to ensure that you have sufficient courses that can actually differ by employer while teaching a broad set of fundamental skills and a coaching team that can call an audible in a given situation to make something more suitably aligned to what that person is doing. 
and and we're in the process of of building out a lot of that at the moment as we scale but you have a kind of overall apprenticeship system that has been operating for a long time in quite an imperfect manner and we're trying to do that in a very different way and as i said if you if you distill it down it's ultimately build a genuine alternative to university in every sense in terms of how deep that is how immersive that is but connect it directly to the labor market and make sure it works both for those organizations that are small uh, and don't necessarily have huge teams within which to integrate people as well as those that are bigger and then keep using it for reskilling because the idea of doing a shot of learning that sees you through a 50-year career right now is madness that's that's not going to happen we're all going to have to be learning and retraining continuously uh, can i, can I touch on something there i i see this is a bit of a free-for-all so i'm just throwing, throwing a little bit of <laughs> that's great a bit of piece in there as well I think there's another aspect to this too. So, I mean, I've been a, I've been a technologist, I've been a tech founder and hire. I've now got an organization that both helps develop technology skill sets and individuals, as well as another organization that invests in technologists and tech founders. So I've kind of seen it from all, all across the spectrum. And, you know, I came from a very underprivileged background, as it were, and yet worked with people from extraordinarily privileged backgrounds, right? So, you know, working in banking in Zurich, because I was in Switzerland for five years, is a very different experience to working in a fintech in London. (laughs) But one thing I noticed, and I always talk about the conveyor belt system that we have here, you know, you select your GCSEs at age 10, 11, you choose your A-levels, those then define which degree, if at all, that you go on to do. That then determines what job role you go into, which then determines where you're going to be for the next 10 years. So by the time you're age 30 and you realize, actually, I made the wrong GCSE decision, it's often too late, right? And that's, this is where I talk about the freedom to fail. And I think what you and, and Ruth are both alluding to with the apprenticeship schemes and increasing accessibility is really important. But also there needs to be recognition that people often at age 30 onwards need to be able to reskill. Right. Ewan talks about continuous upskilling, but some people just need a complete reskilling at that age. And the problem is, is that a lot of these, and Ewan, please correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these apprenticeship schemes don't tend to cater to people at that kind of age level. And even if they do, the employers are reluctant to hire people who are 30 upwards who are just brand new to a role or to a job. The irony is myself, I've reskilled continuously. I was a .NET, I was a Java developer for five years. I then moved to Switzerland and was a .NET contractor for five years. I moved back to the UK and was a co-founder and CTO for five years. And now I'm starting as a VC, right? So every five years, I yes, they've been related, but I've been doing dramatically different roles. So why can't we make it more available to people? Some great points in there, everyone. Thank you very much. Lucy, I just wanted to come to you because I know you grew up in Wales and took a slightly different path. So can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey and what, what options were available to you at the time? Yeah, sure. It's really interesting hearing everyone's perspectives and so much of it echoes my own, actually. And it's funny that you go through life thinking, oh, I've got this really odd path to where I am now. And I had a really odd experience. And then you hear the people talking you're like, oh, actually, <laughs> I feel like maybe my experience is not as uh, atypical as I thought. But yeah, so I grew up in South Wales. My dad still is a self-employed mechanic at nearly 75 or just gone 75. So and my mum <laughs> my, my was medically retired. Unfortunately, she's disabled. So we grew up with support from welfare, which we're really grateful for, and low income from my dad's side. Went to a comprehensive school. Uh, I happened to be Welsh language comprehensive school, <laughs> so it made it a bit unusual, but a comprehensive school nonetheless. So 
I guess my socioeconomic kind of situation, as I've touched on, was lower income, by no means in poverty. And, you know, I know there are people who perhaps were in a more difficult position than than I was. But I think the nature of having the family set up that it did meant that perhaps like a lot of working class kids, I had a lot more responsibility in the family unit than perhaps some of my friends did. And, you know, whilst I didn't become a carer until I was a little bit older, I still had more responsibility around doing your own washing. It sounds daft, but, you know, little things. So there was like more, more jobs to be done at home outside of education. And because neither of my parents had were very, not well educated, probably sounds a bit negative, but, you know, education wasn't a big part of their kind of upbringing. No one had been to university or anything like that. There was less emphasis when I got to A-levels on kind of success from that perspective. You know, like I touched on lower income, but also lower income compared to some of my friends and my social group, which has quite an impact on like your confidence and, you know, whether you're wearing the latest clothes and whether you can do all the same things that they can. But I realized from about 15 that actually the key to unlocking that for me was work. So I began working at 15 on the weekends, absolutely loved it, loved the independence, loved the fact that it became then a bit of a leveler. So it meant that I could buy things myself. I was more independent and I felt more equal to my kind of peer group. But what it did mean, obviously, is that then you have less time for focusing in school. And I worked in the evenings uh, in my levels as well as a waitress. Loved all of that, but, you know, less focused on school. I think a bit similar to what you touched on, Ruth, I have a very different brain and I learn very differently that now I've really harnessed and I understand my own brain, but back then I didn't. So I felt very stupid in, in towards my levels and had terrible, terrible A levels. I mean, I did pass them just, but very much emphasis on the just, and they didn't really reflect kind of my academic capability. And it was kind of, you know, quite challenging for me to get those results, but it did mean that I was still able to get into the university that I'd planned to anyway, because it was a local polytechnic style university, Cardiff Metropolitan. I didn't plan on moving far away from home. I had jobs, like I said, in the area, friends in the area didn't really plan on on, on moving anyway. So then I was able to get into university. So that was kind of, you know, the option available to me was there, you know, kind of on paper, I had a normal opportunity, same as anybody else at university. But I guess what made it slightly different is you know, it's one thing applying for university. And then when you come from a background where that isn't the norm, you do it on your own, which is a bit of a weird thing to do. You could have sort of some parents taking their children to open days, etc, or maybe helping with the application process. And by contrast, I remember telling my parents I was going to university and my mum kind of panicked and said, well, we can't afford it. And being a kind of feisty, maybe a bit chopsy kind of 18 year old at the time, I remember being really stroppy back. I was like, I'm not asking you for anything. I'm telling you that I'm going you know but I think it says it all in a sense that you know that means that it was a very independent thing to do and I was very grateful and very lucky that at the time there was a lot of support in Wales for tuition fees and fees were lower than they are now so getting into the to the university wasn't really a challenge but then when you're there it's a very different situation isn't it so you've got and this was back in early 2000 so didn't have access to the internet in the same way as you do now and even a computer so having to invest in a computer having to invest in books that you know did 10 modules a year and you know, that's at least a book of a uh, semester so that's like quite an expensive overhead so I still continued to work and actually ramped up the amount of work that I did outside of university and got a, a role working in on reception in a Tony and Guy salon <laughs> largely just because I thought as a hustle I'll get free haircuts now too so that saves me like 60 quid a month rather. and I'll get um, and I'll work somewhere that's quite fun and energetic but actually didn't expect to come into the world of work fully not like part-time waitressy type jobs actual role where I had a P&L that I had loads of autonomy for a, a new you know 19 year old person at the time fell in love with that kind of world of business you know marketing how do we get you know people to spend more when they come in how do we get them to come in more often all that kind of stuff loved it ended up kind of still going to university but going through the motions and and kind of finished the first year and just thought not really sure that this is for me and I think a bit like some of the others have already touched on I definitely was in the trap of 
society tells me that a degree is the only way that you'll be recognized as an intelligent person. And I had these A-levels that definitely didn't reflect my ability. And it was the last kind of academic point I had. And, you know, everything tells you that unless you've got a degree, you're not really going to do well in the future. So, I mean, I took a year of working full time and then got to the point where I felt like I should finish it. And it, and it felt like an incomplete part of my puzzle. But I didn't want to go back to uni full time. So I did it in the evenings, which was really hard to do that and work 40 hours plus in a salon. But again, I was really fortunate that I had some support in funding it as well from my employer. Um, and I managed to finish it in the evenings, which was great. And that did unlock other opportunities then. I managed to get so one of the only major employers in kind of my area I was in Bristol, MOD, and you know, one of the only interesting ones that were interesting to me. So that unlocked the graduate scheme there. That led to an opportunity to come to London on secondment. I always kind of thought I dreamed of living in London one day, but that felt very unobtainable to me. I didn't really know anyone there. I think I had one friend from school that went there. It's not really something that, from what I understand, a lot of people in regional, less advantaged backgrounds don't actually tend to come to London as often because it's quite a big step, isn't it? And um, quite a costly step too, right? Mm-hmm. So I was lucky that I had a common into London. That unlocked a power of network, met people that that then meant that I joined the Deloitte graduate scheme at 28. So I think if we just touched on it, it is an odd thing to do. Like I was deemed a really odd person that came in at 28, introducing myself with all these graduates that, you know, often had very privileged backgrounds, often had done a the scholarship program that Deloitte offered because there was some reason that they had a connection with somebody else at the firm talking about kind of where they went to union, what their hobbies were. And then mine would be like, well, I ran a salon for five years and I did all these random things. And like now I'm here and I'm 28. It was a weird one. And it did take a lot of courage and kind of just being very willing to just start again and do mm-hmm. a graduate scheme. And I guess that's kind of, I tried to keep that quite thank you. So no. it too long. But No, Lucy, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. And I think for any, there are going to be hopefully people listening to this that will be inspired by that because I think it, it is a, a non-traditional path, but it's been amazing to see what you've gone on to do. And I think everyone here, you know, has gone on to have stellar careers and, uh, and I, I hope will inspire many people listening to this today. It brings me on to the next part of our conversation really around social mobility in the workplace. Um, I think you know, some progress has been made, but last year's social mobility barometer poll uh, the results showed that 44 percent of people that were asked say that where you end up in society is largely determined by your background and 77 percent think there's a, a large gap between social classes in britain as actually what's your take on this and, and what do you think companies can do from sort of moving from wanting to do more to actually moving the dial when it comes to improving social mobility and giving access to a broader proportion of society opportunities yes i mean this really speaks directly to a lot of what we do and a lot of what i believe and i just want to touch on some of my thoughts around why i believe there is a real problem here particularly when we look at for example underrepresented individuals from a a venture capital perspective right so you have a real situation where there are just inherent networks that are built over time by people from certain privileged backgrounds. And that is not their fault, right? And we shouldn't blame them for that. You can't be blamed because your parents were wealthy, right? That's, that's not right. Just as you shouldn't blame someone because mm-hmm. they were born poor, right? But the imbalance that is created by this is that if you go to a school like Harrow or Eton, and then you just turn up for that entire time, right? And all your peer group, they go on to the likes of Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial. They then graduate from those universities and join the top legal firms, top banks, top technology businesses. And they become doctors. They become 
lawyers, they become bankers, they become, you know, company owners, right? And after 10 years, these people become extremely senior in those roles. So by the time you hit, say, 30, 35, all you had to do was turn up and go to school. And you now have this massive network of well-connected, wealthy, highly skilled, and influential individuals. And from that point, all you have to do is come up with an idea, go to a friend and say, look, I've been working on this. What do you think? And then at the very least, you get an introduction. And that introduction is, look, I know this guy is a good friend of mine. Trust me. You cannot recreate those networks. You just can't, right? And that puts a huge percentage of society massively on the back foot when it comes to succeeding. And that personally, I believe, is why when we look at venture capital allocation, we see that only 4% of venture capital has gone to women and only 1% has gone to black entrepreneurs because of these networks and these massive imbalances that we see in our society. So what can we do at the corporate level to start changing these imbalances, start to recreate? You cannot duplicate those networks, but we can mitigate some of the effects of them. And there are a number of key things. One is mentoring by your staff. Get your staff to actively go out and find someone to mentor, someone from a very different background of their own. And it doesn't have to be a kid. Too many times it's like, okay, I'm going to go mentor a, a, a high school student. Well, great, but you know, let's talk about the problem today. Let's start mentoring those individuals who are out there ready to work in work, but struggling to get into your industry. So I'd love to see more of that. That creates more empathy. It helps start to develop those networks that these people just don't have. Then there is, yes, sure, some early stage intervention by corporations getting involved in, in schools, in universities, getting themselves known, getting the message out there that these are opportunities that are available to you. Like I said, at my school, I can name it now, Mallory, because it's been closed for a long, long time, turned into an academy because it was a terrible school. You know, if we had had people from venture capital firms, large banks coming out to our school and saying, look, this is possible, who knows? Maybe my journey would have been sped up, right? Or maybe more people from my kind of background at that school would have gone to those locations. Another step is paid internships. And I cannot mm -hmm. stress how important these are. I got into Lehman Brothers because I chose to do a sandwich course. And the reason why I chose to do a sandwich course is because I'd failed my A-levels. And I knew it would be a struggle for me to get a job. And I actually wanted to work in video games originally. But as part of that sandwich course, you have to find a year, uh, an industrial placement. And for most of that year, I was struggling. I couldn't get a job at Microsoft. Sun Microsystems, and I was at University of Kent, which was a programming university. I, I tried to go for core design. All these tech companies were not interested. I was one of the last individuals on my course to get a placement, and it was Lehman Brothers that gave me the opportunity, right? And because of that paid placement, I was able then to take some of the pressure off myself and off of my financial situation and do a year's worth, basically a year-long interview, and then I came back as a summer grad and then a summer placement, did some traveling, and then came onto their graduate scheme. So those are vital. And then a big piece of advice I was given by a very senior person at Deutsche Bank was that the biggest thing they ever did that increased diversity was anonymous CVs, mm. right? And I can't stress how important it is because no matter how much we talk about diversity and 
you know, recognizing the importance of non-Russell Group universities, as soon as they see the CV, what do, what do people do? They look at the journey, right? And if that journey doesn't look like mine, then I'm not interested. And that's not because people are inherently racist, but because hiring is difficult and most people aren't trained to recruit, right? And they aren't trained to find the right people for their team. So what they do is they go, well, what does good look like? Well, I think I'm pretty good. So what do I look like? And I don't mean what do I look like in the mirror? What does my journey look like? And in a highly homogeneous society like the UK, which is something like 86% white, even though a lot of far-right groups would like to convince us that's not the case, but that is the case, outside of London, you're less than one ten chance of meeting someone who is black. So when we have a highly homogeneous society, most people will look like you if you follow the journey that you've had and if you insist on that journey being replicated. So anonymizing those CVs is absolutely critical. But beyond that, you then have to look at the performance of your recruitment pipeline. It's no good having all of these diverse candidates coming in because we've anonymized CVs and they fail at the first hurdle in the interview process. So you need to be tracking who's doing the interviewing, who's passing who, who's not getting through and why, and then actively taking steps based on that. So it's quite a lot of information and quite a lot of steps, but to my mind, those are the key things. That can so if I could build on that, it's really interesting actually. So I benefited from such a process at Deloitte, you know, obviously having a, a, two, a 2-1 degree from Cardiff Metropolitan University might not have looked very impressive compared to some of the other graduates that joined with me. But interestingly, I think that, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying around equal opportunity, you know, for people of all different backgrounds from completely different diverse situations is one step. But then for me, the kind of second step then when I joined a firm that was doing quite a lot and definitely making steps and progress to boost diversity in their hiring program, bringing people from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and, and whatever backgrounds into their grad scheme. The challenge I then faced that was coming into a culture that hadn't actually caught up with all of that. So what I mean by that is there were just so many cultural norms. I genuinely didn't realize at the time were it's only upon reflection and actually kind of thinking, oh gosh, yeah, that's why that thing was odd to me. Like kissing each other on the cheek, you know, just things like that. I was just like, I'm awkward enough as it is anyway. But then when I met people that were from very different backgrounds to me that were like, oh, hi, hi, that was really uncomfortable. But also just, you know, things that people talk about, hobbies that they talk about, experiences in their life that they talk about, you know, even just things like, you know, whether you've been skiing and that kind of stuff is very different. So there was a culture aspect, but then the other was the internal policies. So one of the things that really kind of affected me when I joined Deloitte was the expensive policy. So having expenses that you retrospectively claim back seems like quite a normal thing. You just put in your credit card, right? Or you just pay for that hotel when you're on a client project and you claim it back. But actually, when you're from a different background, you don't have like a buffer, or especially as a graduate, or you know, the expenses card hadn't come through when I started one of my first projects and I found myself with a £500 hotel bill to pay. Mortifyingly embarrassed, thinking, oh gosh, like I hope that I have the funds to cover that. It's probably something that you know, just wouldn't occur to someone that doesn't have that background and little things like that can really mean that it puts you at odds when you're from a different background and might be part of the reason why we still see a disconnect in career progression past university so whilst you know all these people might join a graduate scheme from a really diverse background I guess when we then look at who is it that makes it in that culture is it the person that's got an affinity with the partner because they went to a similar school or they've got similar hobbies like skiing and you know they just get a mentorship that way and kind of elevate or is it you know that somebody like myself maybe feels a bit uncomfortable in the situation and and I guess Ruth to your point at the start around getting the best out of people is showing up and being your your whole self and authentic self 
for me, that is, you know, talking about the fact that I'm Welsh a lot and, and, and kind of speaking in the accent that is even, it's a lot softer now than it used to be, but it's still there and I'm proud of it. But actually when I joined the graduate scheme, somebody that was delivering some of the training was Welsh and I hadn't realized she was Welsh until she started to speak to me after the seminar and her accent changed completely. And her feedback to me was to modify my accent because of the fact that unfortunately regional accents aren't perceived to be as articulate, aren't perceived to be as credible. And it's really sad that, that you know, upon reflection at the time, I thought, oh, Christ. And then like, sorry, pardon my language. I, you know, and I actually found myself speaking slightly differently or using different terminologies, or con- being conscious of how I was speaking, not the things I was saying, which is not the right way to be, is it? But, you know, so sorry to uh, digress slightly there. I guess I was just building on your point there around kind of the second phase of the challenge is then making sure the environment is set up to get the best out of diverse teams and harness the diversity and not just expect everyone to then start becoming the same people. I can resonate with that for sure, actually, because um, it's interesting. I'm from North London, Tottenham, born and raised, etc. And I found myself doing the same exact thing when I went into corporate. And I tend to see that most people who are, let's say, black, coming from council estates, etc., that have made it into that kind of world, tend to start to look like that. And it goes back to what you're saying around, you know, what can we do more of in the workplace to adjust that. I jumped on a call the other day with an organization who who are helping entrepreneurs who are overseas to launch successfully into the UK. And they were saying that one of the challenges they have is once the entrepreneurs from, let's say, European countries or the Far East and Asian countries would pitch to investors from the UK, they would kind of start switching off. And it comes back to this point that that you're making around us having to modify the way we are in order to be accepted. It still exists. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not quite sure what kind of activity needs to take place or what kind of upskilling around culture and just instead of us having to bend to the current status quo, what about them looking at how to connect better with us? You know, Mm -hmm. um, I totally, totally resonate with, with what you're saying, Lucy. And now, and I don't know about you, but I feel like now as I progress in my career, I feel a duty to be more authentic and yes. to, you know, use my accent and to, to be, you know, unpolished and quite dorky because that's who I am. And that's how <laughs> I then let other people know that they can be similar and still be successful. And you don't have to all kind of speak in the same way. I'm sorry, I interrupted somebody then. So I think, I think familiarity breeds understanding. And that's why I do mm. believe things like mentoring is so important, right? And, you know, I can guarantee you, I don't sound like your typical Southeast Londoner from Lewisham. And most of the kids I went to school certainly don't sound like me. But I've had a very broad experience of working in different countries with different people from different backgrounds. So I have this tendency to pick up accents, which is why mine is so all over the place. I often get asked, am I Australian? But there's also a level of, you know, what do you bring as well when you when you start in these environments and what expectations do you have and there, there is there is a reality to it which is the, the work environment is different to to your home environment or the the environment you grew up in i mean when i went to for my interview at lehman brothers as a young up-and-coming undergrad from lewisham i didn't i didn't have much in the way of smart clothing right uh, so the only suit i had was a poorly fitting suit from Ciro soterio the only shirt I had was a black shirt and the only tie I had was silver. So I rocked up to Lehman Brothers <laughs> in Bank at the time for this interview. You know, young mixed race lad from Southeast London, black suit, black shirt, silver tie. 
I Love do it. not know what they thought of me as I walked across <laughs> the trade floor. I really, I really don't know. To this day, I'm still astonished that I got the job. But, you know, they saw something in me, right? And I think that's, that's part of what we need, to, we need to deal with. I think just to, to the point that Ezechi was making before, and by the way, you can't, it's a two-sided issue, right? In the sense of you have to create more inclusive workplaces that do reflect who, who people are so you keep people and you, you can better reflect society. I do think, and the thing I, I never want to almost let employers off the hook for is the single most important thing they can do is change the people they hire and hire a genuine representation of society. Mm -hmm. And that is where they have so much power to change things because you talked brilliantly, Azichi, about the way social mobility kind of pans out and those networks. If it's not just the kids from Harrow and Eton and certain Russell Group universities who are getting those great jobs at the very start, then the networks people have in 15 years' time do look completely different. And it's one of the reasons we're, we're such strong advocates of, of using apprenticeships and, and removing the, the kind of academic snobbery, the university piece, you know, where does it rank in a league table from it? And, and actually, the thing that I do disagree with you on, though there is a place for it, is around the anonymized or blank CVs. And the reason is because we've taken quite a different approach. So we basically have a system of contextual flags. So we will highlight on our platform if someone's claimed free school meals, if they're a care leaver, if they have refugee status. We also show people's rebased grades based on what they are as an average in their school. Mm -hmm. The fact is a B at A level from Eton is quite different from a B at A level at your old school, right, as an example. And what we found is that candidates are way more likely to get hired through our platform if they have a contextual flag. Because employers yeah. do now understand the importance mm -hmm. of diversity. They do want to attract these people. The will is actually there. Most of the time, they just have no clue where to meet them. Those individuals, because they won't have a parent or an aunt or an uncle or whatever else who might have worked at one of those companies, won't know how to apply to those schemes. And so we actually instead try and make it very transparent that there is an opportunity to bring someone in who has a different lived experience and that will benefit you. And the good mm -hmm. news is companies, I mean, I do remember at the start of White Hat uh, and we really started levering apprenticeships in 2017, one of the questionnaires for a company we were working with was a scenario based around you're working on a ski chalet in your summer. You know, well, what do you do? <laughs> that I, I'd like to think, and certainly none of the companies we've come across since, it, that doesn't happen now. I think companies have, have moved on from it. But certainly the, the, the work of people like Black Lives Matter and other organizations meant corporates can't just simply say, yeah, we really care about this. We're going to say some warm words, but we can't show you any tangible action we're taking. And so just holding everyone's feet far around, what do you, who are the people you're bringing into your organization and where do they end up is really important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. I agree with so much of, the, of what's been said. And I'm sure there's some, a lot of... Uh, thought-provoking topics that I hope people will take into their organizations. One thing I think particularly of interest to me, given the name of this podcast, is is the point around mentorship that as H.E. referenced, which I believe is is the thing that everybody listening to this can do. Go out there and do it. It's, it's, it's something that can make a tangible difference. Um, and I'm a huge believer in that and have benefited from it myself, but also, you know, have tried to give back in, in that way. So uh, that, that's just my slight interjection on that mentorship point. I'm a big fan go do it we've kind of touched upon building diverse and inclusive teams being super important as much perhaps the inclusiveness about as, as much as the diversity piece but it comes up a lot in conversation given what i do we've seen some of the most popular clients we work with are the ones that have a more diverse and in inclusive culture ruth 
Coming to you as our resident talent guru, how do you approach building truly diverse and inclusive teams? And what are the main benefits from doing so? Okay, so I mean, I think I think in terms of the process stuff, I mean, I think that my fellow learned panelists have covered that fairly well. I wouldn't necessarily add anything there. But what I would say is that really the way that you're ever, uh, the way that you're really going to do it is by giving people that opportunity to do the thing that they haven't done before. So as often as possible, what you need, to, what what talent professionals and people working or just the hiring managers need to be learning that what we need to be looking for is the potential in the human being, not have they done this thing before. And I think uh, whilst we're still looking for, have they done this thing before, you know, uh, that we're never going to move the needle on any of it. But let me tell you, having been someone that has always been an advocate for exactly like I'm always there to bring in the, the person that hasn't done it before, you put your neck on the line by doing so. Mm-hmm. So actually what we need to develop in the people that are doing the hiring is the balls. No, I know. Sorry, rewind that because <laughs> I'd rather be gender non-specific about it. <laughs> and let's say the courage to to put your neck on the line to say, do you know what? I believe in this person and I'm going to back them. And as a Mm -hmm. hiring manager, you need to be be prepared to say to your leader, uh, you know, this is me, this is this person. But equally for recruiters, they need to be saying that too when they're actually putting forward the pool of candidates for a role in the first place. They need to be saying, I back these people. Yep, their backgrounds are different, but I think they're excellent for these reasons. But I think once you get past that point, you're, those people are only going to be successful if they're actually set up for success. So mm-hmm. I did a lot of work at Shazam around removing barriers to entry for stuff, right? So that, you know, people weren't talking about this kind of nonsense around you've got to go to this university, you've got to go to that university and all of that stuff. But what, actually what I found was because I was a, we were a budget poor talent acquisition function, what we actually couldn't do, although we were able to remove the remove some of those barriers to entry, we didn't have the budget and the means to actually support the human being to get through the process. So, you know, I did some some work with June Angelides with Mums in Tech, and we actually didn't manage to make it translate the other side by giving them the opportunity of our paid internship. <laughs> Don't believe in unpaid internships, but giving them the chance to do that. But actually, being up against students from you know I guess more traditional red brick universities they didn't have you know they weren't arriving at the same place so you know we failed there on that at Shazam at that time to really kind of tap into you know that kind of older pool of talent as well and that was something that I was really really pushing to try to make us successful in doing but what we're now doing at Launchpad is we're looking because we're building leadership teams and we're building boards so you know, learning from the lessons of our past and my past, how do we make sure that we're giving people the opportunity to step into their first CEO role or to step into their first whatever it is role and then making sure that they're able to really take advantage of that by, um, you know, having the right mentors, the right people around them to help them step into that role and bring their brilliantly diverse mindset to the challenges that a business is, is facing. Because if we go and get our talent from the talent pool that, you know, perhaps oil and gas companies have been getting for years and years and years, then we're not going to create these kind of innovative technology Mm -hmm. businesses that we want to. But underneath all of this stuff is 
for human beings to really evolve, we need to find some way to get into our little people's brains and to help them to stay closer to who they really are as a child so that they don't mm-hmm. leave themselves and have to find their way back. Because until we do that, we're always going to be trying to pull people back in. And maybe that's the nature of being human because we are always trying to stay safe and we're trying to, to make sure that we're not, you know, that, that we don't experience pain and our brains are wired to protect us. And so we do that by becoming someone else. So mm-hmm. if that, you know, I think it's about, it's about the confidence and the, you know, it's what we're giving our children in education. It's the skills that we're building in them as in education and as parents and just as the village around the children as, as a non-parent, just the village, you know, I can help grow that in others. So, so yeah, um, that was a long garbled thank answer. You. No, thank but, you. But, you know, I think we have to put ourselves out there to, to move anything forward. Yeah, right, and I think you. also when you're a child, education is everything, right? Isn't it? Everything is that. How have you done at school? What's your report card like? Yeah, and and that does ground a lot of your self worth in your academic capability. So then, as a child, if you grow up and you're slightly different and you have different skill sets, it can you can still feel um, yeah you can feel quite insecure, can't you? And then that starts the cycle of lack of confidence, and then that means that you then continually perpetuate the same types of behaviours. I haven't read the books, but I've noticed that Matthew Said's written some interesting ones around empowering children to be themselves that could be interesting reads um, in that area, in that space. I'll check that out. Thank you both. We are getting towards the end of our conversation, but I wanted to touch upon investing because there seems to be a bit of a movement towards helping educate those from underprivileged backgrounds around the importance and benefits of investing. Mandy, do you mind telling us a little bit about your business and how this topic can help us sort of advance social mobility? Absolutely. So it's interesting because Startup Discovery School focuses on less on investment, but more of educating founders on how to create wealth through creating businesses. But this whole creating wealth conversation is something that has come up quite a lot around um, underprivileged individuals. And the importance of helping them to understand how to invest is definitely high on the agenda as well and a hot topic. And I can only speak for myself and give my own examples as to why I think that's so important. When I think back to myself, some of my friends and how we grew up, the easiest way or the most successful way or quickest way we were going to generate wealth was to be told to save. And that's, that's good. You know, saving is great, but they get to a point where you need to spend money to make money. But our parents didn't come from a background where they had the opportunity Mm -hmm. to do that or even knew what the hell that was. So There was no way they were going to teach us or coach us on investing. And so it's really great to see organizations now teaching people from underprivileged backgrounds about that. But sometimes I I, I struggle with it a bit because a lot of people are just getting by, even the ones that are in great operational roles. So some of them don't have that. I was speaking to Ruth a while back around space. Some of them don't have what we call space to actually have the opportunity to, to very similar to Lucy, stop looking after their family and everyone else because they're now in a privileged opportunity to now focus on their own dreams and start investing. But if there's little ways they can do that through, I don't know, help to buy ISAs and, you know, mm. little, little, little schemes that are now out there educating people, then that's great. It's, at least they're starting. But for Startup Discovery School, what I realized is that actually there's some great people in operational roles, teachers, loads of different professions that actually have great big problems that they know how to solve but don't have any way of 
launching those ideas. And then after you launch it, finding an Azatia Impact X to help them fund that idea and, and, and watch that business idea grow. And that's something that I was afforded the opportunity to learn over the last five years. I was given the opportunity by Royal Bank of Scotland to work with them. And they were backing an, a business accelerator called Entrepreneurial Spark at the time. And I went on secondment to work for that company. And I learned all the key fundamentals that it took to take an idea from idea stage through to growth stage. And I worked with so many entrepreneurs in that time across different sectors on how to do that. And over the years now, I've worked with probably over 200 founders and watch some of them go on to grow great businesses. But when I look back at how many of them were, let's say, black founders, for, for example, I could count probably on one hand how many of them were. And so I had to have a self-realization moment to say, hey, what am I doing to mobilize or change social mobility from the backgrounds that I'm from? How can I take this knowledge to help others who I know who are currently operators in certain roles, in certain industries? There's nothing wrong with that. But how can I help them generate wealth? Because I know they can't do that through their salary. Mm. And I know they can't mm -hmm. do that through investing in stocks and shares. So how can I help them to do that? So this was a great way to do that. And we're seeing some great founders come through our program to go on to do great things and build some really good businesses and hopefully receive investment from the likes of Impact Techs and other VCs who are now looking more and more towards underrepresented founders. But I think even that in itself, I have, I have a founder who is a teacher on one of our incubate, who joined one of our incubator programs and they're solving an issue around helping your young child get reception ready because they, they're a teacher and they've noticed the gaps from, you know, children from underprivileged backgrounds, how that affects their, their kids when they get to a certain stage. But they were struggling to get a product designer to put, design this product. And their feedback was, it just seems like you just can't break into that community if you're not from that community. But because I'd worked at and led a program at a hardware accelerator, luckily I know a whole bunch of product designers. So I could help that individual leverage that network. But if she was by herself doing this, she wouldn't, she wouldn't know where to begin or where to start. So I think even from just the program, Startup Discovery School, it's helping people who necessarily wouldn't have access to any of these ecosystems to navigate, to navigate through different paths, different people and, and connect. And hopefully through that, create wealth. That's fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. Great to hear the, the work you're doing and, and wishing you all the very best with that because it's, it's making a tangible difference. You alluded to it, but, but I think I read sort of 0.5% of all funding goes to, to black funded businesses in Europe, which is, is truly a shocking stat, especially when we know there's so much talent out there. So as HE, I just wanted to come to you to get your thoughts on this. And just, I guess, most importantly, what do you think we need to do to change that in the VC industry. And I know you're doing something about it yourself, but it'd be good just to get your, your take on this. So, I mean, this is, this is a really big question, right? We could spend the entire podcast, podcast. talking about <laughs> yeah. it and then some, right? And I think Mandy's touched on a lot of really important points. So I'm trying to make sure I stay focused on some of the key, key issues here. So let's have a look at, because Mandy's very much focused on the education of the founders, which I think is really, really important because, frankly, a lot of founders from underprivileged, underrepresented backgrounds come to VC investors way too early in their life cycle, right? just way too early. But then they struggle to get the angel investment they need to get them to the level that they are ready to then go and speak to VC investors. And unfortunately, there's this whole Silicon Valley CEO mythology around young white founders who've gone out and raised 
hundreds of millions off of a spreadsheet or off of a PowerPoint presentation, which tends to ignore the backgrounds and the networks and the warm introductions that those individuals have had. Which brings me on to the fundamental issue with raising money, and that's warm introductions, right? Because as a VC fund, we have to make a decision on the behalf of our investors as to how we're going to invest that cash, right? Fundamentally. And we don't make any money other than our fee until we return that money to those investors or those LPs, limited partners. And often those LPs, limited partners have very specific conditions around which that cash can be invested. So for example, most VC funds cannot invest pre-seed, right? Just can't do it. If you're backed by, say, the BBB, your first investment in the company must be at seed. Can't be at series A, can't be at series B, right? So you can do follow-on, but your first investment must be there. Also, you're UK investing, not Europe. So it really depends on how that fund is structured and what their criteria is as to when you should be speaking to them. And a lot of underrepresented founders don't know this information. Now, from those funds themselves, when they're making these decisions, they're getting inundated with um, inbound requests for funding. A lot of funds won't even pay attention to that. You can't even contact them. It has to be a direct introduction, right? So for Benchmark, for example, you will never reach out to Benchmark and get an investment. Someone will introduce you to them and it will be a partner. And that's how you get that. So that, again, goes straight to our problem around networks, right? But why does this happen? Because I'll be frank, even myself at ImpactX, I deal with a huge amount of inbound um, applications through our website. We've made it very public, very accessible. You can get hold of all of our contact details from an email perspective, and you can apply for funding. But even then, I think if I look at our data, and we keep very detailed data, in the last 18 months, we already have a pipeline of over 789 founders, underrepresented, 90% black. And this leads to my other point, which is when VC funds say, well, where's the pipeline? I don't have it. You get this bleeding heart response about, well, I need help finding them. What are you talking about? They're there. <laughs> yeah. I've got a list of them right here. The issue is, of that 789, for example, we've only been able to speak to 294 of them because we have a small team. So instantly, there is a huge drop-off you know, from how many have applied to how many get reviewed to how many we actually meet. So of that, we've reviewed 68%. Of that in total, only 37% of our intake have actually had a, had a conversation with us. And from that, if you go all the way down, only 1% have been funded so far, right? We are building, we haven't closed it yet. We are still in the process of building, but we are actively investing. We are building a hundred million pound fund. That sounds like a huge amount of money, but it's tiny. That pipeline that I've just described has an aggregate demand of 767 million pounds worth of funding, right? There is more than enough pipeline out there, more than enough. So it's what are the funds doing to gain access to them? What message are they putting out there? Who's on their investment teams, right? Here's a fantastic example of how black founders just are up against it from day one, right? So Weira, the fantastic incubator accelerator by Telefonica, at the time run by the amazing Gary Stewart, who I've had great privilege to have a number of conversations with. I was part of one of their pitching competitions. I was one of their judges. And I had the privilege of being part of that conversation, identifying 
which teams got through the final. We had a number of fantastic pitches. And at the end of it, we looked, we scored it all up. We looked at it. We had a good room of judges. And none of the black founders had made it through. And so Gary, being Gary, turned around to everyone and said, look, before we close off on this, I just have to ask what's happened here, right? And then we had to relook at it as a team and really dig into why did this team do badly? And you'd start to hear things around, well, I thought he was a bit arrogant, right? With his pitch, it was, it, was, it was too boastful, too confident. But he's done more than this other guy who you put through. Why? And when you force people to address that, it causes people to really go, oh, you, when you have to defend your position, it's very difficult for them to do that. But you need a me, you need a Gary in the room to do that. Out. Yeah. Right? And that's the problem. You do not have this in a lot no. of the funds. Yeah. And we've seen this all over Twitter. So many funds have been called out for this now. You know, they put up their blackout poster on Instagram, you know, a nice big black square saying, well, we support and we believe in BLM. Yeah, but how many companies have you founded? How many of your partners are black, right, for example? And partly that's an issue with the model, right? To be a partner in a fund, you have to put in a percentage of the fund, right? That is a challenge. So if you're a 100 million pound fund and you've got to put in at least a million to that, where's that money coming from and who's supporting that? On top of that, VC funds last for 10 years. So there's not much room for entry into that fund over that time. Not many seats come up. So there's a massive problem. So the answer is, well, let's build our own funds. But then you're a first-time fund. Yeah. And a lot of the funds of funds won't invest in That's you. you. <laughs> right? So it's a complete closed loop. Yeah. Diversity mm. VC, sorry, again, I can wax on about this. <laughs> Diversity VC, and I think this is really the most important piece. Diversity VC, did, uh, which is run by a fantastic Czech Warner oh, yeah. uh, from Ada Ventures, did an amazing study on diversity. And they do all, all manners of diversity within the venture capital industry in the UK. And they did a, a piece of research around Silicon Valley investors, and they identified what the key criteria to be a Silicon Valley VC was. Do you know what it was? That your dad was a VC. Uh, yeah. That was the fundamental Shocking. correlation between them all. And in the UK, the other thing that we find, you know, the UK VCs, backing tech companies all the way, Less than 8% of VCs in the UK have an operational background. The rest are all finance guys. Mm. Uh, um, management consultants, strategy consultants, or investment in M&A. Only 8% have, have an operational background. Only 4% have a technology background. And these are the companies founding tech startups across the UK. Again, largely from their own closed networks. And then of that, only 1% comes from a black background. So I'm the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, by the way, as is the rest of Impact X and the entire team, right? But hopefully that gives some oversight or insight as to why there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Absolutely. Thank you so much. As AG, we, we are running out of time, but I uh, think we, we will almost certainly have to do some sort of round two just to tackle that problem because there's, there's, there's so much more that can, can be said. But thank you so much for, for sharing that. We are pretty much at the end. I'm going to ask for a very, very short response to this, uh, this last question before we leave our listeners with a final bit of advice. But there's been some fantastic discussion here around this important topic. And I know there's some real advancement being made and, and you're all driving this in your own companies. But I just wondered if anyone had any 
particular brief examples of social mobility really working that we can just call out and, you know, uh, celebrate. So if anyone had any, they could just quickly tell our audience about that. It'd be fantastic. Well, I think my own story is one of social mobility. My mum married my dad. She, she was a teacher in Nigeria. She came over to the UK, had to retrain as a teacher because the UK government at the time didn't recognise her credentials. She actually worked as a cleaner. My dad was jobless for a while, got his first job as a teacher when I was about five. I went to a secondary school with five A to C pass rates of 14%, failed my A-levels. And yet, because of the internship scheme at Lehman Brothers at the time, I was able to go through university, get a job in the investment banking industry, and now in a role where I'm able to invest in other underrepresented entrepreneurs. So that's, that's my story about Love that. And I know Ewan's mentioned some of the other businesses that are supporting White Hat in, in itself is, you know, showing that companies are taking this this really seriously. Fantastic. Well, honestly, this has been an absolute joy to listen to and be a part of. I know our listeners are going to take a lot from it. Finally, I'd just like to ask everybody this final question we always ask, which is for anyone that's listening that might be thinking of a big, important career move, and this might be actually whether to go to uni or do an apprenticeship, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? And I'm just going to, I'll go around the, the squares. So we'll start with Lucy. I think it's to be brave and believe in yourself and not to follow the crowd if it doesn't feel right for you. Awesome. Thank you. Ruth? I would say connect into you. So find the means to do it, whatever it takes for you to connect into your essence. You have all of the wisdom that you need already residing inside you. Be less inclined to listen to your brain and be more inclined to listen to the wisdom of your body because your body always keeps the score. It will always tell you what is right and what is wrong. If something's wrong for you, you probably feel a bit sick and your brain might tell you that it's a good idea and it's not really. <laughs> so that deep, deep, deep voice at the seat of your consciousness that is your superpower. Connect into it and start to listen. Let it guide you. Thank you. Uh, is H.A.? So I'd say identify the key goal that you're working towards, and what those outcomes are for you, and then do your research and take the path that makes sense for you. Thank you. Ewan? Yeah, I think on a similar theme, don't be afraid to make a decision that reflects what you value as an individual, even if it's not aligned to what others are, are laying out for you. And I think mm -hmm. if you ever have the opportunity to do something you care about, and can also make a living from it, then you're in a brilliant position and you've got to seize that. Absolutely. And Mandy, to finish off? I'd say get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Get out mm -hmm. of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be afraid to try new things and take risks, move across the world, move to different locations in the UK. Do what you need to do to take up space. A wonderful piece of advice to uh, to wrap this up on. Thank you all so much for your insights and thoughts on this really important topic. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure everyone that's listening has taken a lot from it. So thank you all very much. Thank, thank you, James. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.